Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, we hear from Aoife Allen, Head of Food at Hubbub, who collaborate on practical actions that help the environment. We then hear from Harry Deacon of Cultivate Cornwall, a community interest group interested in the circular economy. Finally, we speak to Zoe Morrison, author of Eco Thrifty Living, about her journey to sustainability. First up, here's Aoife Allen from Hubbub. So welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Hi, Amy. So my name is Aoife Allen and I'm the head of food at Hubbub, which is an environmental charity based in London. Uh, At Hubbub, we try to communicate with the broadest possible kind of cross-section of the public about environmental issues. And our core aim is to make sure that people understand that they can make small changes in their everyday lives across the things that really matter to them. So whether it's food, fashion, the neighborhood they live in or their home, or, you know, cumulatively will have a really profound impact on on the environment. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of Hubbub and how it's grown since it was founded? Absolutely. So Hubbub was founded uh, five years ago um, and it was founded initially as a, as a small compact team of four people. Um, over the last five to six years, it's grown to a team of almost 40. So it's expanded really significantly. Um, we'll work with uh, any partners really who have an ambition to uh, change behaviours and raise awareness around environmental issues. So we work with a huge broad section from individuals to community groups, uh, to local authorities uh, and to corporates large and small. Um, And essentially we just want to do um, communications that help people to make those small changes in their life that all add up. So one of the main ways you do that is through your campaigns. Could you give us a brief overview of the food campaigns you have? Sure. So we've got a couple of things on the boil at the moment. Um, One of our biggest and kind of most enduring campaigns right now is called the Community Fridge Network. So that's a network of 100 public spaces across the UK um, where anybody can drop off surplus food or collect surplus food. Uh, It's not means tested. You don't have to be referred to a community fridge. You can just pop in and pick up some extra food uh, for your household when the fridge is open. So we have a lot of donations from retailers across the UK in particular, but individuals will sometimes drop off surplus that they have at home too, uh, just within particular guidelines once the food is unopened and in date. Um, So yeah, I mean the fridges are a great place to redistribute surplus food, but also to bring people together. So they're a social space and in many cases also a space for learning. Uh, Lots of people also attend, you know, cooking classes um, or other activities such as community cafes that are linked to the fridges. So they're a great opportunity to redistribute surplus food, but also to bring people together. That's one that we have on at the moment, and we just hit the 100 fridge mark last week, so we're celebrating that, and we're really, really pleased. Um, our ambition for the Community Fridge Network over the coming year is not necessarily to grow double the numbers or anything. It's more to make sure that each fridge is fulfilling its potential as a food hub in its community. And that need uh, became really, really clear during COVID 
when we saw that the Community Fridge Network were kind of uh, really valuable responders in their community in a lot of places. Some had to wind down um, their activities because it wasn't safe for them to continue to operate, but many of them pivoted to essentially a COVID response. And in, in certain cases, we're actually delivering food parcels of surplus uh, to the doorstep of vulnerable households that couldn't leave because they were shielding. Um, so I guess we're really, really keen to make sure that any fridges possible can develop out into those very integrated community food hubs over the next couple of years. Um, another campaign that we're running at the moment is a very exciting pilot in Milton Keynes called Food Connect. Um, this is a food redistribution service um, where we've commissioned a couple of electric bikes and an electric van to collect that surplus food that I've already mentioned and bring it to community fridges within the Milton Keynes area. Um, and that's a bit of a test to see how we can tackle what we call the final mile issue in food redistribution, where there's often plenty of surplus out there, but actually getting it to the community and getting it redistributed as surplus for human consumption could be a, an additional challenge. Um, so that's another one that we have on the go at the moment, which is going really, really well. Um, we've got a campaign in Norfolk and Suffolk where we're working closely with the local authorities there uh, to raise awareness around the issue of food waste and hopefully uh, reduce the amount of food that's wasted in those two counties. So that takes a number of different forms from, uh, you know, very engaging, uh, um, uh, very engaging and high, high visibility sort of installations. Uh, in towns and uh, villages around the two counties. We've got a huge social campaign going ongoing across the two counties as well, just providing people with really practical solutions that they can undertake at home to reduce their waste. And I think, as we'll probably discuss in a little bit more detail, um, we also work closely with some of the retailers around food waste. So we've been doing some uh, campaigning with Little over the last uh, couple of months, uh, just supporting them with, with um, kind of eye-catching and playful comms around how people can take practical action to t reduce their waste at home. And we've also been doing a more in-depth campaign with Tesco over the past couple of months where we've worked closely with a cohort of their customers to tackle their waste at home. So could you tell us a little bit more about that Tesco campaign? I think it's called the No Time for Waste Challenge. That's right. So we set up the, we co-designed the No Time for Waste Challenge with Tesco during the summer. Um, we figured that it was a really good moment to speak to people about food waste because, as we've touched on briefly, uh, during the COVID crisis, people did become that bit more aware of kind of making the most of their food and were shopping in a more mindful way potentially than usual and were more concerned with making sure that everything they bought got eaten. They were also looking, we knew from our own comms channels that people were looking for more tips and advice on how to store food and make it last longer. Um, so yeah, we partnered up with Tesco to take some of the kind of key, the most challenging, um, the, the most stubborn challenges around food waste to a cohort of their customers. So we recruited 55 households from across the UK. Um, and we essentially ran a five-week campaign where we set a bunch of challenges every week for people to undertake that would uh, allow them to explore things such as correct storage, planning their meals and eating everything that they buy. Um, at the heart of the campaign was to make sure that it was a lot of fun and that the information was really clear and easy to understand because food waste can feel quite complicated to people. Um, it can be, there can be a bit of a knowledge gap around, you know, whether you can 
eat rice the next day, for example, or where you should store your bananas. These things seem um, fairly mundane, but they're actually really, really important and can make a huge difference uh, in people's lives as to whether they end up throwing food in the bin or not. Um, so yeah, the campaign ran for five weeks and at the beginning we asked people to measure their food waste over seven days. So literally just had them weigh in any edible waste uh, after dinner each evening or after their last meal of the day and then had them do the same thing after five weeks. And we're still processing the data, but it looks like there's been a really, really substantial reduction in people's waste over that time. And that people's knowledge and skills have been massively boosted by the campaign. To uh -huh. give us a little bit of background on domestic food waste in the UK. So how much households waste, how much they can save. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons that food waste is a tough nut to crack is that many people waste food but because they tend to do little and often, people tend not to think that they waste food. So almost anybody that we speak to would say, oh, I don't waste much. And then when you interrogate a bit, you realize that actually cumulatively, cumulatively over a month, people are actually wasting quite a bit. And that essentially means money in the bin. So RAP, who'd be kind of the foremost authority and research body on food waste in the UK, estimate that a family of four with children um, could save about 60 quid a month if they tackle their food waste, which is really, really substantial over the course of a year, could up to, add up to a nice holiday or something along those lines. Um, so yeah, even though, as I mentioned, um, many householders would say that they waste very little or that they don't waste at all, actually, 70% of food waste that occurs in the UK at the post farm gate stage. So once it's kind of been delivered from the supplier, 70% of that food waste occurs at the household level. So it's a really significant problem. So other than the Tesco project, which of your campaigns has made the most difference regarding food waste? That's a really good question. And I suppose it depends on which angle you come at it from in terms of actually stopping food from going in the bin, the community, the community fridge network is incredibly successful. It's redistributed literally hundreds upon hundreds of tons of food every year. Um, and it, it's a community space where people who might be experiencing food insecurity or who have a really strong environmental motivation for reducing waste and, and kind of consuming surplus. It, they're community spaces where anybody can go and kind of pick up that food. So in terms of tackling uh, tangible waste, reducing the volume of food that goes to waste, uh, the Community Fridge Network has been a, a, a huge success. What do you think is the most important or most effective way to reduce our domestic food waste? So what advice would you give to our listeners? That's another good question. Um, I do feel that there's a knowledge gap when it comes to food waste and there's a really complex uh, number, kind of set of reasons for that from um, sort of lack of uh, management of food or domestic management of food in formal education uh, to the way food is often marketed, uh, you know, with confusing use by dates uh, versus best before dates. There's still quite a knowledge gap around, you know, which is safe to eat um, you know those of us who work on food waste know that food generally is perfectly safe to eat after it's best before but a lot of householders are still very cautious around that um, and also just the way that we consume food like it's very convenient and cheap for us generally to buy an abundance of very very fresh food you know you could bring home mangoes lettuce tomatoes aubergines carrots 
uh, from a single shop for very little money, but then discover that actually you don't really need a kilo of carrots for your household or you don't really, you haven't really factored in that food to your week's plans. And very often it's that stuff that ends up going in the bin. So um, I think the key advice that I would give to a household is to, is to, sh- to plan before you shop. Um, when you sit down and actually work out what you want to eat in the week, it doesn't take a huge amount of time. And ultimately, it can really prevent you from going and just kind of filling your shopping basket or filling your shopping trolley with things that look nice rather than what you actually need that week or being seduced by those very appealing uh, buy one, get one off offers or or a discount on something. So if you make a list and I mean, really check that list, look in the fridge, look in the cupboards and see if you already have the stuff that you were thinking to buy and then go from there. That can be a really great um, way of reducing your waste at home. And also just kind of being tuned into the financial incentive around saving food waste. Um, when we when we communicate to people that they if they're in a household uh, with children or a family with children, that they could save 60 pounds a month. I mean, it's a really powerful incentive um, to kind of just try to tackle your waste and start using up your leftovers and eating what's at home before you sh- go shopping again. So I think those are two key things. One is to plan. And then the other is to tune into the kind of benefits that you might get from tackling your waste. And if people are concerned about the environment, it is one of the single most impactful and immediate things that you can do. Uh, to support the environment and reduce your impact is to just eat the food that you buy rather than throwing it in the bin. Great advice, thank you. So when this is going out, it will be coming up to Halloween. Uh, What is the pumpkin rescue campaign and how do people take part to save their pumpkin waste? So the pumpkin rescue campaign is one of Hubbub's very first campaigns, so it's very dear to all of our hearts. And it's a really simple campaign in a way. The core message is just eat your pumpkin. Um, So I think in the UK, we've kind of embraced um, Halloween uh, 100% apart from the part where where you eat pumpkin around that time of year. We're not so good at eating the pumpkin that we buy in the way that would occur, for example, in the States where people make lovely pumpkin pies at this time of year. Um, So we're essentially doing a bit of a call to action to ask people that if they're carving their pumpkin, that they use the carvings. and the seeds uh, and a few other bits and kind of eat those up um, as they carve. And then once the once your pumpkin has been displayed uh, over a number of days, we wouldn't be suggesting that people eat them after they've been sitting out carved for five days, but perhaps compost them at that stage. But pumpkins are a really interesting hook, I suppose, to speak about food waste, because a lot of people don't think of them as food. And it means that a lot of, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of of pumpkins in the UK every year end up being carved and just popped in landfill. They're not necessarily uh, composted. And in a lot of cases, no part of the pumpkin that's been carved is eaten. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, we won't be able to do the usual on the ground events that we'd normally run as part of the pumpkin rescue campaign this year. It's going to be digital. But if people keep an eye on our channels, uh, we're hubbub.org.uk and you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. We'll be doing loads of lovely tips for how to make delicious pumpkin curries, how to make sure that your seeds get eaten, uh, pumpkin pies and all the usual delicious stuff that people might be tuning into this year. Fantastic. So our last sort of big question, how do you think COVID-19 will affect or has already affected our our waste? So are people more interested in, you know, cutting down on their plastics or is it getting worse? What do you think? 
It's a, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, so on the food side of things, uh, we did keep an eye out to see whether there would be a surge in food waste uh, early in the lockdown as there were kind of rumours about people panic buying more than they needed. But what we found from some polling that we undertook in April, and that's been substantiated by other uh, agencies undertaking research since, it would seem that people became more cautious about food waste rather than uh, wasting more food, which is good news in any other context. Um, so we, yeah, we didn't see any enormous surge in, in waste at the household level. Obviously there was waste at the um, more kind of industrial level uh, and hospitality level as early on as um, retailers or rather um, hospitality uh, found themselves a food that they wouldn't be able to sell. Um, and producers found that some kind of, uh, some of the recipients would have uh, not needed what they, what they were expecting to sell to them. Um, it's a bit trickier when it comes to things like masks, gloves, etc. Obviously, there's been a proliferation of use of single-use masks, um, which are essentially, to an extent, a single-use plastic. So that's um, really difficult. Um, and we've been doing some comms around making your own masks and uh, using reusable masks safely. So that's obviously something that people can take on. Um, again, in terms of plastics, um, Anecdotally, we've seen that, that it does seem to have fallen down the agenda slightly in terms of people's sustainability concerns, because in some cases people are probably associating plastic with hygiene and perhaps aren't um, as concerned about single-use plastic as they may have been before the pandemic, pandemic began. So ultimately, it's a very, very mixed picture in terms of sustainability and covid it seems to have tuned people into making more, making the most of their food, which is a, a good thing. But we have seen, as I say, a proliferation of the use of, of single-use items um, out of safety concerns and hygiene concerns. Great, thank you for that. So finally, where can people find out more about Hubbub or get involved? So the first place to have a look would be at hubbub.org.uk, um, which is our website, and that's where you'll find all the information about all the different campaigns I've spoken to and many, many more. Um, if people want to follow us on Twitter, they'll find us at Hubbub UK. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Hello Hubbub. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Trying to make a difference in the Southwest, here's Harry Deacon from Cultivate Cornwall. Fabulous. So welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, I'm Harry, thanks for having me. Um, I'm one of the directors, um, the founding directors of Cultivate Cornwall CIC, um, a community interest project that's based down in Cornwall. And can you tell us a little bit about what Cultivate Cornwall does? Cultivate Cornwall is quite varied in the fact that we run lots of different projects to achieve our quite broad objectives. Our kind of our main focus as such is looking at how we can support people, communities and businesses to manage their resources more effectively. So with that, we've kind of fallen into both the circular and sharing economies quite heavily. Um, but also when I'm, when I'm talking about the sharing of resources, obviously the one that jumps into most people's mind initially is the natural resources. Uh, and we definitely do that in a lot of ways in the way we work with raw material, particularly within circular economies and how we look at repurposing waste materials and things like that. Um, but also when we talk about resources, we also are referring to 
belongings and things um and really that's brought us more towards the the sharing economy um as well but in terms of looking at resources as to the items that we make and how they can be more sustainable and the things that we use the things that we own um but also physical resources in terms of things like the skills that we possess um, and how they can be shared across the community uh, to support transitions towards a more sustainable way of of living of behaving and of doing business um, so text is one of the the main projects that we we run at the moment um, and that is a, a project that focuses on repurposing textile waste uh, we look at how we can take various types of waste textiles from all sorts of different businesses and repurpose them in a way that supports communities. Um, and, and that's one of our key kind of circular economy focuses. And the other key focus for us that fits quite well within the circular economy uh, is the fair exchange, which is a relatively recent project for us. Uh, we've only got into that properly this year. Um, but the Fair Exchange is a project that basically distributes surplus food uh, to people in need. But in doing that, we also find ways that we can support other community initiatives and community projects that are doing much the same, but not necessarily able to keep up or meet with the demand or they've got shortfalls uh in the food surplus that they're able to access. So we try and find ways of, of plugging those gaps for them. Fantastic. So I'm interested to know more about text. So how does the textile recycling process work? Where do you source them? What do you do with them? All that sort of thing. We basically, we look at ways of working with textile waste uh, and using that for community benefit. That can happen in a number of different ways. In the most basic form, we look at ways we can repurpose the waste by working with businesses to understand the specific challenges they're facing with the textile surplus that they produce and we work with them to find a unique solution to address that particular challenge. Um, so it's quite complicated in the way we work because it's a different way for every different organisation that we work with. Um, and with that, the ways we benefit the community, the ways we kind of support a transition to a circular economy um, are quite varied. Um, but also within text, we also uh, run regular activities for the community that kind of look at ways that we can encourage and support people and individuals rather than just businesses um, and, and support them to live more sustainably. Um, but there's also other elements that we bring in. Um, so one of the key things that we do through through the activities of text is we run workshops and those workshops are all about sharing skills um, within textile craft, sewing, seamstress skills, those kinds of things. When we were working with Exeter University, one of the things that we noticed was that when you equip people with the skills so they can repair, alter their own clothes, then that is actually the single most effective way of maximising the life cycle of their clothing in their own wardrobe so we can really by sharing those skills we find we can draw out the lifespan of clothing that people are buying and also in working with the companies that we work with repurposing their waste into new products um, 
that's also for us we found a brilliant way of creating employment uh, in Cornwall we noticed there were a lot of to be quite specific women over 50 that were struggling to find continued employment um, many of which had skills that they picked up over their lifetime um, in sewing so they were extremely talented um, so through through developing techs we've been able to develop jobs with the community and by understanding their needs but we also look at how we can encourage more people to live more sustainable lifestyles through the circular economy in the way that we produce products so we have our own range of eco products that we've produced from surplus textiles just make up removal wipes um, through to travel packs uh, and uh, children's accessories and clothing uh, all the way up to de-logoed t-shirts and, and fashion items um, so we have have a quite a range of different products that are made from the surplus um, that offer those more sustainable alternatives to what's already on the market but then also we look at how we can encourage kind of circular economy um, and and very heavily the the sharing economy through the activities we do so we also do regular swishing events uh they were that was something we'd done on a huge scale before lockdown uh with social distancing in place we can't do it as we had previously um our swishes essentially it was a huge clothing swap where up to 150 200 people at times will come together um in the space of two three hours they'd swap up to half a ton of clothing between themselves um so it was on a on a big scale these events so covid has put some restrictions in place for us um on, on how we might move forwards um in the way we work um but it's essentially we're going to be very focused on those same kind of priorities as initially um and looking at how we can use waste textiles through text to bring communities together, help people gain skills and support people in living more sustainable lifestyles. So do you have a coronavirus response plan working from what you just said? We do um, to an extent. For us, a lot of the last few months um, has been about developing a bit of a plan of action to how we move forwards. So since lockdown, really, we've been looking at how do we respond to COVID in a way that allows us to carry on. Um, and we're going to actually spend the next few months of our time just experimenting with some of those ideas that we've come up with. Um, one of which is the swish that I was talking about earlier and how we're not going to be able to do them as these big events that bring hundreds of people together. Um, it just won't allow with social distancing and the current guidelines. Uh, but what we are looking at doing, we have uh, a couple of retail spaces. Uh, part of one of them, we're looking at having that as a dedicated swish that is just open as a normal shop. Um, but really, it will be a space within our shop that will allow people to bring a bag of clothes um, and swap it for a bag of clothes. And we have stock on the rails that will always be accessible. Um, and that will also allow us to bring in different levels of like the quarantining 
So we've been trying to find ways that we can work around it. Um, and that's one of the ways we're going to do it with the Swish. Um, I think another thing that's been really challenging for us through COVID is social distancing. Uh, we've got, as I've said, we've got a few shops, um, but they're all very small. Um, essentially, we're, we're going to look at ways we can collaborate with others. Um, that's been something that's been central to our ethos for years now. Um, since we started, we've always looked at collaboration as a key way in, in moving forwards. Um, so we're going to look at, as part of our COVID response, how do we collaborate with other community projects, um, some of which that we're already very closely aligned with. Fantastic. So you won the award for circular economy in 2019. What interests you about the circular economy models that you know inspired you to incorporate it into your company? It's, it's an interesting one, the circular economy, um, because I think I think it's something we really came across by accident. Um, so it wasn't something that we were initially necessarily excited about um, as a concept. We weren't really even aware of it as a concept when we first started working within a circular economy. It was something we were already doing. And then while we were doing it, we realized that we were actually working within the circular economy. So from that perspective, for us, it feels like circular economy has been something that's kind of been quite an organic movement in our direction um, and something that feels quite natural. Uh, I think because of our, our passion for the environment and the community, it was probably inevitable that we were going to end up working in a field or industries and in a circular economy approach in some form of way. I think my my characteristics are definitely that of an entrepreneur. Um, I'm someone that isn't happy with just carrying on as we are. Um, I think that for me to see techs as a success, we want to be in a position where we've completely changed industries um, and doing in that in a way where we can demonstrate the alternative options. Um, so people can see them as not only viable, but potentially more beneficial. We're not in it just to run a few swishes, if you like. Um, our, our passion and our, um, our motivation for doing this and working within the circular economy is to see um, a business environment in the future that's completely different, uh, much more environmentally responsible um, and one that's embraced a circular economy. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that has allowed us to be successful um, is by showing companies how the transition to a circular economy can not only improve their environmental responsibility, um, it's also a brilliant way of adding to your value proposition. And in most cases, the businesses we work with are able to become more profitable as a result. Wonderful. So building on what you said about being an entrepreneur, I came across the phrase ecopreneurship on your website. Can you tell us a bit about what that means? It was a phrase that we came across probably a couple of years ago. It was when B Corp was starting to become really popular 
and everyone was talking about B Corp and it was something we had considered but as an organisation that's relatively small uh, it wasn't necessarily the most cost effective option for us the value it bought initially at that time wasn't necessarily worth the cost of becoming a B Corp um, and going through that process of, of becoming one. So we were, we were really just exploring around what other alternatives are out there. Um, and we came across the phrase in that process, uh, ecopreneurs. My understanding of it is essentially that it's all of the principles of entrepreneurship but applied to a business that is there to solve environmental problems um so for environmental problems from our perspective is looking at all of the waste that's being produced we want to essentially solve the problem of all of the surplus and all of the waste that's being produced by the fashion and textile industries mainly but not just the fashion and textile industries we're working with industries in construction and through to manufacturing anyone essentially that has some surplus textiles as a result of their processes uh, and really that's why we where we've spearheaded um, that term ecopreneurship from okay so many of your projects include food as you mentioned earlier how do they work so the food is in a lot of ways uh through the fair exchange project which was massively scaled up in response to covid we're very much led by our community um so we are constantly putting feelers out to try and understand the people that are in our local community what the biggest challenges they're facing are um and particularly at the start of lockdown access to food was one of those really really big problems so we worked really, really quickly with Fairshare um, to set up um, a food distribution hub in Cornwall, uh, the Fair Exchange. And yeah, we've, di we've distributed since the start of lockdown over 40 tonnes of food. Most of that is going out to other community projects. About two thirds of it is going to different projects throughout Cornwall, um, supporting them so they can meet their, their shortfall. So some of them are just simply distributing food parcels um whereas some are running community larders uh and community fridges uh it's all sorts of different groups that we work with as long as they're they're supporting their community um and distributing surplus food uh we'll help where we can and we've had a donation point outside uh, our shop where the community have been able to donate food um we've also formed some collaborations with local supermarkets so as the morrison's and tesco's and then the main other kind of key partner that's been involved is hive um hive have been been really useful they again have provided that different source of food so hive have been making essentially frozen ready meals for us um up to 500 meals a week throughout lockdown uh, at its peak. Fantastic. So finally, how can people get involved and follow your projects? The probably where we're most active and the easiest way to kind of find and engage with us is through social media. Uh, Facebook is is our most popular um, social media tool. Uh, 
text which is on there um is on facebook if you search text and facebook you'll find us uh the fair exchange bobman is also on facebook and we're also on facebook as cultivate cornwall there's a few accounts that you can follow that will give you different information on the specific projects and obviously cultivate cornwall is a more of a general overview of everything that we're involved in we also have quite an active blog on the Cultivate Cornwall website. Um, our website's www.cultivatecornwall.com. Um, and if you go on there, there's a blog that will provide regular updates for all of the different things that have been going on, what we've been doing. Um, we've put things like calls for volunteers on there as well. Um, so there's other ways people can get involved in. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Last but not least, we hear from author and award-winning blogger Zoe Morrison. Fab, so welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi there, my name is Zoe Morrison and I am the author of Eco-Thrifty Living, the book and the blog. What made you want to become more eco-friendly? I've always been interested in the environment. When I went to university, I did an environmental science degree, um, but I realised I was not scientifically minded and ended up dropping out and doing a philosophy degree. And I think it was more just that I was aware of environmental problems and issues, but I wasn't living a particularly eco-friendly life. But when I became pregnant um, with my first child, I was bombarded with messages about how breast is best and you should only use eco-friendly and organic products with your child. And I think even before that, I was buying into organic foods and things like that. But it really ramped up a notch when I got pregnant. Um, and so I was buying into really expensive products, basically. And when I got pregnant with my second child, um, I decided that I didn't really want to work anymore. I had two kids. I had a long commute and it was just too much for me. So I wanted to quit my job and be a stay-at-home mum. But I've always loved writing, so I also decided I wanted to start up a blog as well. And my problem was that we had two salaries and we just moved house and we just had another child. So how on earth were we going to be able to afford to live on one salary, especially if I was buying expensive eco-friendly products, which I still wanted to be able to provide the best for my children, which was to be eco-friendly um so that's how my blog and my story sort of started i decided that i was going to find out how i could save money and the environment and i spent about a year completely obsessing with the subject <laughs> and then a year later i quit my I, I did go back to work after having my second child but i quit my job after a year of being back and haven't really looked back since Fantastic. So you've been blogging for around eight or nine years. What's changed regarding eco-friendliness in that time? Has it become easier to live sustainably? It's definitely become a lot more mainstream. The, I mean, the, the ways that I was, the main way in which I saved money was by reducing my rubbish. And the zero waste movement has hugely taken off in that time. And now you have hundreds of zero waste shops around the UK and people want to buy unpackaged produce and, and are really worried about plastic and um, veganism is a huge movement as well. Like I took part in Veganuary in January <laughs> um, and it's really taken off and all the shops have got vegan products and restaurants have as well. And so being eco-friendly has become pretty mainstream, a pretty hot topic and 
much more accessible um, from a there's lots of products and there's lots of things that can help you. Can you tell us a little bit about your recently published book, Eco Thrifty Living, and what we could expect to read in it? Yeah, so after blogging for years and years, I'd always wanted to write a book. And so I decided it made sense to write a book about what I've already written about. And so I thought I'd sort of bring together everything that I've learned over my time of being eco-friendly and saving money. And it covers a range of topics from how to produce food waste and packaging in your kitchen to how to have fun with your kids on a budget. And um, it's got 11 chapters. I'm just looking at it now. <laughs> um, yeah, so how to have an eco-friendly um, festive season, giving gifts and presents and things, cleaning, fashion, gardening, everything that you could want in your sort of home life, how to save money and the environment how long did it take you to write that well <laughs> it took me at least a couple of years of actually writing it but a long time of you know all the research that I've done on the on being eco-friendly and saving money and all my time of blogging really has contributed towards it so it's, it's been a long time in the making fantastic so how did quarantine affect the way that you practice sustainability it didn't really I didn't feel like it made a lot of change to my life because when I started being eco-friendly it was kind of before it became mainstream so I had to find ways of doing it that were weren't sort of obvious ways so I for example like I buy lots of food in bulk which is how I avoid pack, um, excess packaging and, and it saves me money so I just sort of carried on with what I usually do and perhaps even ramps it up a bit um, and obviously you know most people a lot of people have said they save money over the time um because they haven't been able to go out and spend it so when you don't spend money you're also not buying products you're not using up resources so i think if anything we've become more sustainable but only really in the same ways that we always were great so do you have any tips for staying sustainable during the pandemic i know you said it hasn't really affected you but would you uh, recommend reusable masks yeah, so I've been reusing reusable masks. I think that if you're going somewhere like a hospital or somewhere where there's a need for a disposable um, hospital grade mask, then, you know, do that because it's, it's, you know, life is more important than like protecting people's lives is more important in those situations. But I think in general, sort of everyday life, if you don't have a medical need, then yeah, wear a reusable mask. We've been using those with no problems. and. I did buy some um, eco-friendly, well, it's, it's some hand spray from a company called Pure Essential, who, it, it comes in a plastic bottle and it's a spray, but it's just made from natural ingredients. So, if, you know, look for products that are better, if you can. And like I said, buying in bulk, um, I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, that was a huge um controversial topic because the people bulk buying were blamed for shortages in the supermarkets but actually I think what happened was that everybody bought a little bit extra and that's what caused the shortages whereas if you really do buy in bulk you're generally buying from companies that are geared up to sell things in bulk and having I think what changed for me in the pandemic is that um there's certain I kind of keep my stocks low so that I wouldn't waste any food but now I keep my stocks of things higher so that I've got 
backup <laughs> in case of emergency. I suppose. And I think that's a sensible thing to do. And you don't, as long as you're buying long life products, then they're not going to go off anytime soon and, you, and you're going to use them. Then I think that's a great way to avoid packaging and to have backup plans in your house as well. And it can save you money if you buy in bulk. And I'm not just talking about food. Like I buy um, shampoo in giant bottles of it and um, things like soap bars to wash your hair there's all kind of product all kinds of products cleaning products food products bathroom products that you can buy in larger quantities and if you buy them in bigger packets at cheaper prices per um by weight and it will you'll have less packaging it will save you money and then it's it's like having you know they always say you should have three months salary in the bank well now i sort of realized it's, it's a good idea to have a couple of months or a few weeks worth of food in the house or products in the house because not just because of um if you can't get to the shops but also because in this current climate people are getting made redundant so it's another way of having a little bit extra to tide you over in your home fantastic so where is a good place for people to start becoming eco-friendly obviously it's such a overwhelming thing that you've got to be perfect right at the start where's the best place to begin? I think that joining in with a campaign is a great way to start. There's quite a few throughout the year. So like I mentioned, veganuary in January. So if you were thinking of becoming more plant-based, you don't have to become a vegan just because you do veganuary. Um, it just sort of, when you sign up, you get lots of emails and they'll guide you through the process and exactly what you need to do. And and obviously lots of other people are doing it at the same time. So you get lots of support along the way, feeling that you're not the only one. And right now it's Zero Waste Week, uh, which is always at the first full week in September. And when you sign up to their website, they will send you out daily emails throughout Zero Waste Week. And each day has a different theme of reducing your waste. This year it's food waste. Um, and then there's Plastic Free July, which happens in July every year, which challenges you to reduce your plastic. All of these campaigns, you don't have to be a vegan by the end of them, all completely zero waste or plastic free. It's just to sort of take those first stepping stones towards those lofty goals, if you like. And also, um, I have various Facebook groups which you can join. Um, I've just renamed one of them today to the Eco Thrifty Kitchen Club. So it's a, it's a Facebook group which can help you reduce your food waste and your kitchen waste. And I've just renamed it because I'm actually writing a book, which will be my second book, hopefully, um, by the same name as that will be the Eco Thrifty Kitchen, which will be all about how to reduce kitchen waste and food waste. And on that theme, there's um, a website called Project Drawdown, and they list climate change solutions. And they have two scenarios, but in their of what could be could happen in their scenario one situation they list the solutions by sort of the best solution to the least effective solution and reducing your food waste is that at the top of that list and reducing food waste is a a real passion project for me because it it's just one of those things where if you don't throw food in the bin it doesn't cost you anything and it saves you money because you can eat exactly the same food you've always eaten, but you're just not wasting it. So it costs you less for to have what you the, the same diet and the same food that you've always needed. 
Fantastic. So what is your biggest pet peeve when it comes to sustainability? Greenwashing. That was, that's the lesson I learned early on was that when I was first pregnant and when I sort of first started being eco-friendly, I was just buying into labels that said eco or um, natural or organic, that kind of thing. But quite often products will say something, but it doesn't mean they're that good. And it and and people can bump up the prices of eco-friendly products as well. So greenwashing is when they're saying this product's green, so you should pay more for it, but actually it's not that good. And one of the first examples that I came across was that I was buying baby wipes and they were the eco-friendly version of a supermarket owned brand baby wipe. And the supermarket sells they still sell them now. They they sort of sell their basic baby wipe and then their eco-friendly baby wipe in the same packaging and they look pretty much the same it's just they're different colors and different slightly different names but what the eco-friendly baby wipes i can't they're something like 75p more expensive than the non-eco ones and they aren't biodegradable they do contain plastic so you have to throw them in the bin the packaging is plastic and they have the same ingredients as the non-eco-friendly baby wipe. And um, it's just that two of the ingredients in the eco-friendly baby wipes are organic. So I now look a lot closer at packaging. I really question what I'm buying. I think it's difficult to buy a product that is perfectly eco-friendly. To be honest, anything we buy is going to have an impact. But I massively object to paying lots more money for something that's not really that much better than the cheaper version. So speaking of bumping up prices for eco-friendly products, do you think that eco-thrifty living can be achieved by someone in a low-income household? Um, well, I think the thing is that I know that some people say, well, being eco-friendly is too difficult because I don't have the time or I can't afford to buy in bulk or products that would save me money in the long run because I just don't have the cash flow. So I think that time and and cash flow are problems for people but there are certain things that will just save you money like for example shopping in charity shops because everything's cheaper there and because you're reusing something it's eco-friendly rather than it going to landfill so there are some things that that can be done by anybody on any budget with any time well, obviously you do need the time to go to a charity shop, but if you didn't have time, you could just order stuff off eBay, which is also secondhand. Um, and there are other things which might be more tricky if you're limited on time and if you're limited on your cash flow. But even if you don't have much cash flow, and also another thing people say about box buying is lack of space. But I think there's always a way around it if you want to, and it all depends on sort of what your motivation is and what you want to do. But like so if you wanted to get cheaper prices on a certain product and you know that it's going to be cheaper if you buy it in bulk then you could club together with other friends and buy that product with them and then split the cost and split the product so but that obviously takes a bit of organizing so it all depends on what your priorities are how you approach it and what you want out of it great so finally where can people buy your book or check out your blog so my blog is www.ecothriftyliving.com and the book is the same name, Eco Thrifty Living, and it's a
on ebook or print book on Amazon. And make sure you look up Eco Thrifty Living by Zoe Morrison because some other people have published books more recently or a book more recently with similar names. So it's Eco Thrifty Living by Zoe Morrison. And I'm also at Eco Thrifty on Instagram and Twitter and social media. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waistcode podcast brought to you by Greencode. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode.